coming up on Chopper's Politics. You know, the, the full extent of whether or not Brexit is a success is never going to be able to be realised in a week, a month, a year. Brexit's for life, it's not just for Christmas. Hello, I'm clearly not Christopher Hope. I'm Dia Chakravarti, the Brexit editor here at The Telegraph. Welcome to Chopper's Politics podcast. I'm keeping the seat warm for Chopper as he has a well-earned Easter break. And while I'm in the hot seat, I thought we should take the time to do a deep dive into a subject that saw Conservative MPs starting their Easter holidays with a spring in their step, the CPTPP. Hmm, quite a mouthful. That's the Comprehensive and Progressive Agreement for Trans-Pacific Partnership to you and me. Later in the episode, I'll be talking about the possible pros and cons with the Conservative MP, Philip Davis, and Labour's Nick Thomas-Simmons MP, the Shadow Trade Minister. But first, what exactly is the CPTPP? Well, that's exactly what I asked Amanda Tickell, Head of Tax and Trade Policy at Deloitte UK. Yes, well, it's quite a mouthful, that acronym. It stands for Comprehensive and Progressive Trans-Pacific Partnership. It's basically a trading bloc which consists of 11 countries spanning the Pacific Rim and includes, for instance, Malaysia and Chile. How significant is this deal? Well, it's the biggest trade agreement the UK has agreed so far since leaving the EU. I would say it's significant because the UK has agreed to join an existing and pretty large trading bloc. And it's the first new member, actually, to be admitted since the whole area was set up. And it's pretty vast. It's 11 countries spanning from Malaysia to Chile. And actually, we don't have a trade deal with Malaysia at the moment. So um, this is the main area of of liberalisation that the deal gives us. We don't have a trade deal with Malaysia at the moment, but we do have a trade deal with some of the other countries in the bloc. Um, So why is that important, Amanda? How is it any different to the individual bilateral deals we have with some of these other countries? You're you're absolutely right, dear. We do have trade agreements at the moment with nine of the 11 countries, including Australia, New Zealand, Japan, but they do cover slightly different things. So if I just take a moment to explain. So under CPTPP, most of the tariffs are liberalised. They are going to be removed more quickly than under the bilateral FTAs. And there are more flexible rules around rules of origin. So just on tariffs, if I give you a couple of of examples. So the government has said that they expect that we'll have lower tariffs in in a range of sectors, including some alcohol goods, really food and drink, and cars. So they're expecting us to be able to export more cheese to Canada, Mexico and Japan. And uh, I must come back to Malaysia because this is where we've got a specific opportunity. Because we don't have a trade agreement, we are facing quite high tariffs in areas like whiskey. It's 80% on whiskey and 30% on cars. So having an FT now effectively with Malaysia under the CPTPP arrangement is going to reduce the costs of sending goods to Malaysia. And an example of rules of origin, so why do I say they're a good thing? They're complex and we'll have to wait to see the actual detail here. But the the basic idea here is that at the moment we've got an an FTA on a sort of one-to-one basis. So if you want to, say, sell a car to Australia, you've got to be able to prove that you made your car in the UK. 
So most of the components or the process and all the labour around it needs to be done in the UK. With CPTPP, it's trade in a block. So what you can do is source your component parts or your labour and everything else that goes into your product from within the block. As I said, we'll have to see the detail in the agreement as to how the rules of origin will apply. But that's the general idea and that's why it's more flexible. On the rules of origin, Amanda, the burden placed on the UK by the rules of origin from this new trade deal, how are they going to differ from the rules of origin burden that we had under the EU, for example? Yes, well, I mean, so so there's a way of looking at this. First of all, when we were in the EU, we were in a truly harmonised single market. I mean, it's mm-hmm. the, the deepest level of harmonisation you can get for trade. Now we have the Trade and Cooperation Agreement with the EU, which mm-hmm. itself has rules of origin in it. Mm-hmm. And the reason I said they're complex is because they do differ, actually, by, pro- by product. So, you know, you may have to have a different proportion of component parts in mm-hmm. a particular product. Mm-hmm. And so So what I can't tell at the moment is exactly how different the rules of origin are going to be by member country and by product type because uh, we haven't got the detail of the text yet. But all I can say is there should be more flexible rules of origin and you should be able to view this block as a place of origin to some extent. We're just going to have to wait for the detail. These countries, though, are so far away. Some people are saying too far away. How important is distance in one-day trade? I mean, I think distance still does matter. Obviously, it adds a lot of cost. It adds air miles, which people are now more more conscious of. There's a so-called gravity model that people talk about. So you tend to trade with your closer um, partners geographically. But I would say, though, that, you know, now we do get used to seasonal products all year round. So we tend to buy from other countries, including fruit, for instance, comes from all over the place. But I would say, just to come back, it's very easy to visualise trade by thinking about a a container full of shipments you know to think of trading goods Mm. but we should think of services and the UK as you know is a big service economy and at the moment we already trade more services with CPTPP countries Mm. than goods and of course now so many are delivered virtually digitally if you think of films and gaming and even architectural design or legal services which we're very good at here they actually can be delivered remotely so the The fact that this agreement liberalises to some extent trade in services is going to be a good thing for our service economy. So are some of these emerging economies going to be open to the sort of services we have to offer then, which so far we've heard that it's more geared towards European economies. But is it the change happening in those economies or back at home, which, which helps us provide the suitable services to them? Or is it a bit of both? I think a bit of both. I think, you know, the extent to which we are creating new things that people want to consume is one thing. But also in these these countries generally, I mean, I think it's about 500 million or so, the population, and it's growing. Um, so it's one of the growth areas of the world. It's a big chunk of GDP, as I said, about 13% growing to 15% when the UK joins. And I think just generally our society is starting to consume more services. So I, I do think this is a good thing. And when I I say liberalisation, I mean things which have been barriers to trading, which 
businesses might not even have really realised. So things like requirements to hold data locally in a warehouse in that country. So data localization it's referred to, are removed. So it becomes cheaper and easier just to send a, a digital version of your product. And you've just mentioned that it's a, it's a growing block. It is where a lot of the growth is happening. There are other countries who are waiting to join the block as well, we hear. What sort of say do you think UK would have as a member now in deciding who now gets to join the bloc? Yeah, once the UK is a member, it will effectively have a veto on any new country joining. So new entrants have have basically got to demonstrate they can comply with all the rules of CPTPP and only if all the existing members are satisfied can a new country join, which is why this has taken around two years for the UK to negotiate this to make sure all, all members are satisfied that the UK meets existing standards, for instance. Now, we know that countries including China, Ecuador, Costa Rica, Uruguay have all applied to join and South Korea, Thailand have expressed an interest in joining. So it could be a very large trade area in future and as you say the UK would effectively have a veto on a new member. The first article that was published by the BBC when the trade deal was first announced was headlined UK-Asia trade deal to boost UK economy by 0.08%. So why are we getting so excited about it? Yes, that is the figure that the official modelling suggests. And it is a very small percentage. Mm. I would say it is a small percentage, but it is a big number. You know, if you think of our GDP, it's uh, over two trillion. It'll probably be three trillion in 15 years. Who knows? Mm. So it's a small number over a very long period of time. And I think, though, it's quite difficult to model the impact of trade agreements. You have to also think of other qualitative benefits of being in that trading block. And also it might increase over time. You know, we yeah. talked about other countries joining. Mm-hmm. So um, hard to model. But yes, that's exactly what the official modelling says. Is the government doing enough to sell the deal to businesses? That is an important point because a trade agreement is just a platform. So its success depends on how much businesses utilise it. And I think there is a real role for government to explain how to do just that. So, you know, we've done some research. It shows businesses pretty engaged, actually, with government so far. But, you know, let's just think of that long list that senior leaders have got to deal with at the moment. And they can be pretty inaccessible. These trade agreements can run to over a 1,000 pages, very technical um, speak, lots of chapters to go through. And you have to analyse that trade agreement according to exactly what your business type is, where you're trading, where you might want to trade. So I think the trick for government is to try and break it down sector by sector so that business can start to really relate to what's actually in it and how they might take advantage of it. Amanda, the details all appear to be a little bit vague still. When are you expecting to hear the the proper details of the deal? Yeah, so you're right. We've got what I'd say is the large print. We haven't got the small print yet. We have to wait for this deal to go through final negotiations. Then there is a legal review of the text. Then it has to go through the normal parliamentary process here in the UK. And actually in other countries, similar processes need to be followed. And then it has to become law before it goes live. So we are talking quite a while. I wouldn't expect for this to go live before the end of 2024. So now we know the basics. Let's put on our goggles and dive deeper with Liam Halligan, economist, Telegraph columnist, and of course, host of fellow Telegraph podcast, Planet Normal. 
Liam, it almost feels presumptuous to welcome you to a Telegraph podcast because you are a Telegraph podcast veteran and I most certainly am not. But welcome and thank you for joining us. Great to be here. Liam, talk us through, if you would, please, the 0.08 prediction to do with CPTPP. What is that figure about? Have the civil service really overdone it this time and played the country down? Well, I think there's a general tendency within the civil service, within lots of big bureaucracies, for economists to massively downplay expectations in their forecasts. And then when things turn out better, everybody's happy rather than getting things wrong in the other direction. But I do think the Department of Trade has completely overdone the pessimism and gloom when it comes to predicting that the UK's membership of CPTPP will increase UK GDP by merely 0.08%. I think that's massively overly gloomy. And I think the reason it's happened is because the whole of Whitehall is wedded to what we call gravity models of trade, models which overwhelmingly emphasize trade with countries that are close to us and de-emphasize trade with countries that are a long way away. But when you're the world's second largest services exporter and you already do a lot more trade outside of the European Union than with the European Union, as is the case with the UK and has been the case with the UK for a very long time, then using gravity models is going to give you a very downbeat assessment. And also, those estimates don't allow for the fact that many, many other countries will join the CPTPP. America could even join the CPTPP. This could become the most important trading bloc in the world, not least because the essence, the kind of underlying motivation and philosophy of this trading bloc, unlike the pattern of world trade, which has become more protectionist in recent years. As you know, dear, the CPTPP is all about free trade. There's a lot more emphasis on free-flowing movements of goods and services between the 11 members of this block, a block which I think will grow significantly, not just in terms of the share of the world economy that it accounts for, but also in terms of its membership numbers. So do you think, given that we now know that the bilateral agreement with the US is not really going to happen anytime soon, do you think there's a chance that the US might become a member of the CPTPP before that bilateral agreement happens? I think there's a very strong chance of that. That's exactly what Crawford Faulkner told me. He's the UK's chief trade negotiator who was very much at the forefront of the negotiations. We should also mention previous trade secretaries. I think Liz Truss deserves a lot of credit for what she did, emphasising the importance of the UK's membership of CPTPP. And of course, Kemi Badenoch got the thing over the line. Kemi Badenoch herself told me, Secretary of State, just a couple of hours after the deal was signed, that even though this 0.08% of GDP prediction for the growth impact or lack of impact of membership of this trading block, even though that was created by her own department before she was Secretary of State, she said it it was a ridiculous prediction and was backward looking and stale and far too gloomy. And she said that on the record and we reported it in the Telegraph. Yet, of course, a lot of people who don't like Brexit, who don't like the idea of the UK trading more outside of the European Union, they were very happy to lead their coverage on an estimate, which I think makes no sense. And in that 
same report that you just mentioned, if I remember correctly, Kemi Bednok also mentioned the fact that some are worried that businesses won't take advantage of this deal and therefore won't get the benefits that they they could get if, if this deal was properly taken advantage of. Do you think the government's doing enough to sell this deal to the businesses so that they know that there are, say, lower tariffs available for them to t- take advantage of? In general, and I've been critical of the government on this for many, many years, In general, when I look at how the Aussies promote trade, when I look at how the Irish promote their trade around the world, then they do a really, really good professional job. Enterprise Ireland, Austrade, these are organisations which get huge bang for their buck in terms of promoting trade. You know, we we have various delegations and, and the great and the good of business might jump on a plane with the Prime Minister. I've been on a lot of those trips myself. But what we're not good at at all. And I don't think Whitehall's good at this. And I don't think the various bodies that are meant to do this in Britain do it very well, even though I respect quite a lot of the people who who work there. What we're not good at is getting our small and medium-sized enterprises exporting more. This CPTPP is a big opportunity for British business because it allows uh, the so-called rules of origin regulations are much more lacks within the CPTPP. It's much easier to import and export between the various countries, adding value to the manufactured goods in particular without punitive tariffs sort of building up and making the whole enterprise commercially unviable. That's a major difference between the trade deals that we've got with inside the CPTPP and the individual deals that we've got with some of the countries involved. So I do think we need to do a lot more on export promotion. And I think we need a lot more commercially savvy, business experienced people within Whitehall working on trade promotion rather than very, very cautious, overly gloomy economists really being at the forefront of our efforts to promote this deal. So I was going to ask you about sovereignty. With the EU, we knew that we were having to play by the rules set by Brussels and and, and a lot of people who voted um, for Brexit did not like that, objected to that. Would we have to now play by a new set of rules set by this other trading block that we've just become a member of? Well, with any trading block, when you trade within the block, the goods and services that you trade have to adhere to the regulations of the block. I mean, that's by definition. When we trade with the EU, goods and services that we sell have to abide by the regulations within the EU. That, That always happens. The difference is that the EU is a kind of supranational effort to move towards political union with massive financial contributions that the UK had to make every year. And all goods and services made within the UK had to abide by EU regulations, regulations made elsewhere, whether or not they were exported to the EU. And, you know, just 8% of our GDP was exported to the EU. So the whole, the, the other 92% of our economy had to abide by those EU regulations rather than regulations set in the UK and accountable to British voters. So there's a world of difference between being a member of the EU and being a member of, of a trade bloc that you can you can leave at any time and which is all about promoting enterprise rather than building a big tariff barrier around a part of the world, which is what the EU does. Is there a cost to joining CPTPP like there was with the amount of money that we were paying the EU? No, there isn't, there isn't an actual cost. There's, of course, the sunk cost of negotiation and a secretariat and a civil service effort in order to maintain 
our relationship. But I think any of those sunk costs will be massively outweighed over time by the benefits. But, you know, this is all about the, the future. If you look at the share of the world economy that the EU currently controls, it's about 15 or 16 percent. The CPTPP countries plus the UK, it's about the same, 15 or 16 percent. The difference is in 2050, even on World Bank predictions, the EU will account for 10 percent of the global economy and the CPTPP plus the UK will account for over 20 percent of the economy. So we can see that the whole weight of economic gravity is shifting to the east and the UK needs to be part of that. And that's, in the end, the overwhelming rationale for joining this trade bloc, a trade bloc which is likely to get much, much bigger, not least if the world's biggest economy joins it, which is by no means off the cards. In terms of other people or other countries joining that bloc, um, China's apparently quite keen from what I understand. How how do you see that? Do you think that it would be a good thing um, if China joins in? Um, I, I can see the benefits of it because it obviously increases the, 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 the size of the bloc. But does that also mean that the rules suddenly change because China changes some of the rules? There's no way China's going to join the CPTPP because the rules of the CPTPP would basically exclude China because there are rules on governance, on the share of the economy that's controlled by the state and many, many other rules. Not that deliberately exclude China, but which China by its very nature wouldn't be able to meet or want to meet, certainly under Xi Jinping, who is, of course, the leader now for life. So obviously, I, I, we should trade with China. China is the second biggest economy in the world. It's the biggest economy in the world on some definitions. But I think what the CPTPP is all about, it's about linking those Pacific Rim countries, which really is you know, the citadel of global growth demographically and economically in the next 30 to 50 years, and trying to lock them into a system that actually promotes free trade rather than a system that is protectionist. The world has become more protectionist in recent years. This whole idea of deglobalization is not a joke. It's a very worrying trend. And CPTPP, it's a mouthful, it's ridiculously named, it's arcane, technical people say things about it that not many of the rest of us understand. But what it is, above all, it's an effort by like-minded countries from varying political systems, <laughs> you've got the Vietnamese in there, along with the Japanese, along with the Brits and the Australians, you know, some other big economies looking to join South Korea, a top 20 world economy, could easily join CPTPP very, very soon let alone the United States. It's about countries that have different backgrounds but want free trade rather than protectionism getting together in order to promote free trade. And I think as trade between these countries grows, as it inevitably will, other countries will want to be part of this trading block. And in the end, you know, the best way to ensure harmony and peace between countries or at least a lack of overt aggression is to trade. There aren't many cast iron laws of economics, but that is one of them. Just before you go, I wanted to ask, does President Biden hate the UK? No, I don't think President Biden hates the UK. President Biden is a politician to its fingertips. It's all he's ever done in life is be a politician. I think he's playing to the crowd in Ireland. I mean, what I would say about Ireland and America, the Irish-American relationship is one very close to my heart. I know a huge amount about it. I have many, many family members who are American, all of whom are the offspring 
of people who left Ireland, of course. And we can't make these lazy assumptions, as the British media often do, that Irish America is, by all accounts, a, a Democrat construct. It isn't. You have many, many Irish Americans who are now Republicans. And Joe Biden knows that the Irish American lobby is hugely powerful, culturally, financially, commercially. And there's a fight going on between the, the Democrats and the GOP for that kind of Irish American soul. And Joe Biden is very keen to fight that fight and he'll do it wherever he can, not least when he comes to this part of the world. Thank you very much, Liam. It was a pleasure having you on. Thank you very much for sparing the time. Pleasure. Nice to be with you. Don't tell Alison. <laughs> <laughs> that was Liam Halligan. Liam and Alison Pearson's Planet Normal podcast this week features a chat with economist Catherine McBride about the CPTPP, because of course it's a subject you cannot have enough of. And there will be a link to that in the show notes of the episode if you'd like to listen. Do stay with us, listeners. Coming up, I'll be speaking to Philip Davies MP to find out if he thinks this deal delivers the Brexit people voted for. We're interrupting this podcast to bring you news of another Telegraph show we think you might like. It's called Planet Normal, and it's hosted by me, Liam Halligan. And me, Alison Pearson. We're both Telegraph columnists who share the view that far too often those who shout the loudest on the telly just don't represent the views of normal people. So take a trip with us to Planet Normal. We're joined by some stellar guests, well-known voices from politics, business and the arts. All from different fields, but they have one thing in common. They're at the top of their game, but distinctly down to earth. The good news is I finally learnt what a podcast is and even how you subscribe to it. It's actually quite simple. Search for Planet Normal on your podcast app or click on the link in the show notes for this episode. You don't really know what a podcast is, do you? I am one. Look, I am one. Who needs to know what it is? I am one. Okay, shut up. Now, trade deals, as exciting as they are to some of us, can be difficult to sell to voters who might legitimately wonder, what is in it for me? So I caught up with Philip Davis, Tory MP for Shipley, to ask how the CPTPP was going down in his constituency. And I started by asking Philip the big question. Does this trade deal mean global Britain has finally arrived? Yeah, I think so. I think this is a very much a big step in the right direction. This is what I always envisaged when I supported Brexit. Uh, you remember, dear, that I formed a group back in 2006, before it was popular, called Better Off Out. And it was called Better Off Out, along with the Freedom Association, deliberately, because we always felt that in order to make the case for leaving the EU, it wasn't ever going to be enough to be about sovereignty or democracy, important though those things are. We had to persuade people that we would be better off outside of the EU. Mm. One of the key arguments that I always used to make and still make today is that, you know, we built our wealth in the UK by being global traders. Mm. And the EU had become an inward facing, backward looking protection racket, which was basically set up to protect the interests of European businesses and French farmers in particular. Uh, and that it went against everything that we ever stood for in believing in global free trade. And, of course, the consequence of this protectionism in the EU is that every year the EU becomes a smaller and smaller part of the world's economy. 
and I always said that, you know, what we needed to do was to be part of where all the action is, part of all the growing parts of the world's economy. You know, in Asia, South America, Africa, that's where all the future growth in the world economy is going to come from. And that's where we needed to sort of, in effect, focus our resources. And so this deal, this CPTPP deal, is everything that I envisaged back then in 2006. Because, of course, whilst CPTPP is about 16% of the world's economy today, which is about the same as the EU, they're both similar, make up a similar amount of the world's economy. Crucially, by 2050, CPTPP will make up a quarter of the world's economy, and yet the EU will only make up 10% of the world's economy. And so that, to me, proves that this is the right path for the UK to be developing trade agreements with growing parts of the world's economy rather than focusing all of our energy into a declining part of the world's economy. So for me, this is really, really important. Is this the Brexit people voted for, Philip? Yeah, it's the Brexit I voted for. I mean, look, people voted for Brexit for different reasons. We we, we mustn't forget that. It wasn't all about my sort of uh, vision of a, a global Britain. Lots of people voted because they didn't like the fact that unelected and unaccountable bureaucrats in Brussels were deciding UK law. Well, that's now no longer the case. We're deciding our own law. So that has already been delivered. Some people uh, didn't like the fact that we were handing over £19 billion a year to the EU as a, as, a, as a membership fee, as a subscription fee, and wanted that money to be spent in the UK instead. Well, that's been delivered. We're now no longer handing over an annual subscription fee of £19 billion a year, and that money can now be spent in the, in the UK. Uh, lots of people were concerned about free movement of people, that people could just come over from the EU, whether, whether we wanted them here or not. And wanted that stopped. Well, that has been stopped. There is now no free movement of people coming over from the EU to the UK. I mean, there's there's lots of issues with uh, with other forms of immigration and illegal immigration, but the EU part, the free movement of people, has been stopped. So, on all of those things that lots of people uh, were concerned about when they voted for Brexit, all of those things have been delivered. Um, but at the end of the day, what, what I envisaged was a global Britain which looked out to the rest of the world and not just within a small part of one continent. And so this this is very much the kind of Brexit I voted for. But with this, is the challenge to translate the benefits of trade deals like these to the constituents. Do you think that constituents are excited about this trade deal? How would this translate to benefits for those voters? Yeah, it's a very good point. I mean, I, I don't know whether people are excited about it or not. Probably not, as I, I'm sure if you did an opinion poll and said, you know, how excited are you about <laughs> the PPP trade deal? You'd probably get some blank looks from most people. And those who did have an idea what you were talking about probably wouldn't be that excited at all. <laughs> so, no, I mean, I think there's a there's there's certainly a slow burn with all of these mm. things. And, you know, the, the full extent of whether or not Brexit is a success is never going to be able to be realized in a week a month a year you know brexit's for life it's not just for christmas and so <laughs> uh, it, it will be something that people look back on over a period of time and and hopefully you know my children will one day look back on on it and say yeah that was exactly the right path for britain it will it will manifest itself in in, in years to come and these sort of uh, trade deals and geopolitical changes are things that only are meaningful when you look back on them over, over a period of time 
So what are the criticisms we've heard about this? And this is not from the opposition so much as from trade bodies, is that the government has some selling to do off the deal to the business people in order for businesses to take advantage of the deal. And a deal is only as successful as businesses take um, advantage of it. How do you think this sort of a concept can be taken to, say, even small or medium-sized businesses in your constituency so that they know that this provision is there, this deal is there, which they can take advantage of? Yeah, again, these these things take time. And look, I'm, I'm pretty sure businesses are, are pretty canny people. They can They can look after themselves to a large extent. Brexit has meant that there's got to be a huge shift in the way that we all look at things and particularly the way that businesses look at things. Businesses basically put mm. all of their apples into one car, which was the EU, because mm. they saw that that was an easy place to trade with and, and all the rest of it. And I, I don't think I'm being particularly harsh when I say that most people, whether it's politicians or businesses, tend to be pretty short term in their thinking. When I worked for ASDA, long-term thinking tended to be about the end of that particular financial year, to be perfectly honest, and didn't really think much beyond beyond that because that's the nature of business to a large extent. You know, it's a bit like being a football manager. If you put plans in place that will bear fruit in five years' time, uh, you won't be there in order to, to benefit from it. You'll have been sacked by then because people are only looking at your next few games. Mm. So... It is going to need businesses to actually be brave and say, well, look, you know, there is a change of focus here. We are going to have to stop putting all of our apples into the EU cart. We're going to have to start diversifying and looking to the rest of the world. And and that will pay dividends because, like I say, the EU is a declining part of the world's economy. The rest of the world is a growing part of the world's economy. So where would you want to hit yourself? That shift of focus and, and finding new markets and finding new customers it is going to take time, but it is in, it is quite clearly in the long term interests of businesses who who make those decisions. But but yes, the adjustment, the short term adjustment, is going to be difficult for many people. I accept that. Mm. And with the local elections coming up, you, you've got a few West. Some some of the West Yorkshire councils are up for uh, for the elections as well, aren't they? Um, what mm-hmm. is the general mood over there? Well, uh, obviously, I don't think you have to be Professor John Curtis to realise that these are <laughs> difficult elections. For the Conservatives, just you just have to look at the national opinion polls. So we are, you know, looking at a diff- difficult set of elections, and you know, I I feel sorry for any Conservative councillors who who lose their seats not through anything they've done wrong, but just because they are fighting the political tide. Look, the, the, I mean, I, I've been out knocking on doors in in my constituency. We've got local elections coming up. I think. What's striking about knocking on doors in my area has been that I don't think I've yet found any voter who was Conservative who's now voting Labour. Very, very difficult to find somebody who voted Conservative who's now voting Labour. There's a distinct lack of enthusiasm, I think, across the political spectrum. And uh, I think that's something that we're all battling against. I think what we worry most for in these elections is the turnout and whether or not Conservative voters can be motivated to go out and vote and it's our job to try and make sure that they they do go out and vote conservative i mean there's no doubt that that rishi sunak has improved our position uh, has improved our reputation for competence he's steadied the ship lots and lots of people are starting to recognize that he's you know he's doing a good job he's getting things sorted out he's very competent and and he, he is certainly a positive in these local elections but yeah look they, they, they're going to be difficult midterm of any government finds local elections difficult and I suspect we're not going to be in any exception to that. 
It's interesting that you bring up Rishi Sunak in that answer, um, because I was going to ask, with the uh, Labour attack posters, some of the London commentators have suggested that it might be attractive to uh, red wall voters. And I was wondering, have you found that red wall voters have taken to these posters at all? Do you think they're cutting through? Well, oh, I mean, I, you know, it's difficult to say whether they've caught through or not. N- nobody's mentioned them to me on the doorstep. Mm. Uh, whether that means anything or not, I don't know. Maybe that doesn't mean anything. I mean, I, th- I think the posters were a mistake, to be perfectly honest. I mean, I, you know, I don't mind the cut and thrust of politics. That's that's fine, you know, and none of us should be bleating about things like that. I think it was a, a strategic mistake, personally. And the reason I think it was a mistake is that it, the polls will show you quite clearly that the weakness of our position is the Conservative Party brand and the strength for Labour is the Labour Party brand. You know, if you put Labour versus Conservative to the voters, Labour comes out on top at the moment. Mm. That's that's self-evident. Mm. But if you put Rishi Sunak versus Keir Starmer to the voters, then you get a very different result. And it's perfectly clear that Rishi Sunak is, is more popular than the Conservative brand and Keir Starmer is less popular than the Labour brand. And so if I was the Labour Party, and not, it's not necessarily for me to give them advice, and it doesn't really matter because they probably won't take my advice <laughs> anyway. If I was the Labour Party, I would be trying to do everything to me the next election, Labour versus Conservative, because the opinion polls mm. show that that's a winning formula for them. What I wouldn't want to do if I was the Labour Party was make it Rishi Sunak versus Keir Starmer, because the opinion polls show that that, that makes it very difficult for Labour. And so I, I can't understand for the life of me why they're trying to personalise the election, because if they do want to make it Rishi Sunak versus Keir Starmer, you know, we'll take that all day. That that gives us our best chance of winning the next election. And from their perspective, I, I fear that they're playing into our hands. Uh, so I just don't understand the strategy. I'd be doing everything possible to make it not Rishi Sunak versus Keir Starmer if I was a Labour Party strategist, but uh, I, I'm not. Right. And lastly, I just wondered what you thought about Boris Johnson standing in Henley. Do you think he's going to do that? Take a slightly easier way out? <laughs> I, uh, look, I, I don't know. Boris has said that he's going to stand in, in Uxbridge at the next election. I, I've got no reason to doubt that. Look, if I were a betting man, which I'm not. Which you are. Absolutely are. I mean, because I have been rumble. Do I think that Boris will stand in Uxbridge at the next election? Look, I, I, if I was a bookmaker, I'd say it was odds against. I'd say it's more likely he's going to stand somewhere else. But look, I don't know. My guess is no better than yours and it's no better than anybody else's. I guess the only person who knows the answer to that is one Boris Johnson. And uh, Quite. he always has the capacity to, to surprise us. I'm sure there'll be a surprise or two down the line. That's, that's very diplomatic, Philip. Well, thank you so much for coming on. Not at all, dear. It's always a pleasure. Thank you. That was Philip Davis. Now, someone who is slightly less thrilled about the CPTPP is the shadow trade minister who feels Labour would have done a better job at negotiating. Nick Thomas-Simmons joins me now from the Welsh mountains. Nick, thank you so much for joining us today. Absolute pleasure to be joining you. So we are looking at CPTPP today. I understand that you're less than thrilled about it. Would you tell us why, please? Well, I think it's just a question of looking at the detail of this. Mm. Labour is a pro-trade, pro-business, pro-worker party. And of course, I welcome the opening up of new markets around the world. The reason I'm perhaps a little more cautious is simply because 
We've had this situation before where the government has lauded a particular trading arrangement. Like take, for example, the Australia deal. Then the next thing we know is that the current prime minister is going around saying that the deal is one-sided. We have the, the former Secretary of State George Eustace walking into a debate in Parliament talking about how awful the deal is. So I'm very much pro-trade. I'm very, very keen to deepen trading links around the world. The caution comes, frankly, because of this government's poor record on negotiations. Right. Um, So you think Labour would have done a better job in negotiating? Well, I wouldn't be aspiring to be the Secretary of State for International Trade if I didn't think I could do a better job of negotiating. Right. That's exactly what I would seek to be doing. But I would also say this, it isn't just about that hard-headed negotiating approach at the table. It is also about recognising that once you have new free trading arrangements in place, that you stand beside our exporters to Hmm. actually take advantage of the new opportunities. The OBR is saying, for example, that in 2023, our exports are going to fall about 6.6%, which is a hit of around about 51 billion to our economy. Hmm. Now, I regularly in this role have the privilege of visiting exporters around the country, speaking to them about what it is that they need to increase their exports. Only about 10% of our businesses do export. And a lot of this is actually about you know, information, wherewithal, particularly for our SMEs, because we do know that exporting businesses, we tend to get the more highly paid jobs, we tend to get the more secure jobs, and it's also a very sustained way, way to produce growth and help the cost of living crisis. Uh, so do you think that the government is also failing to sell the deal to our local businesses who wouldn't necessarily know how to take advantage of the deal? They're comprehensively failing in that respect in a number of different ways. We saw, for example, their former minister for exports, Mike Freer, who you know le- leaves office and then talks about how inadequate the trade fairs that we are holding is. And you know, I've spoken to exporters who say that the deadlines are just too close; they're not getting a proper opportunity to plan. And also, it isn't adequate, I'm afraid, when you have new trading arrangements simply to be putting things up on the government websites, they've got to be looking at how you can give businesses, and it's particularly those businesses, the SMEs, that we need to be standing besides, making sure that we have that wherewithal, we give them that information, we give them that opportunity. Hmm. And I'm interested in when when you say Labour would have done this differently. I just want to explore how how you would do it differently. So, for example, I, I know that you know human rights and environmental protection and, and all that sort of stuff is very close to your heart. When you go, when you're representing the country and you want to go and do a trade deal, say with the US, because the government's failed to get a trade deal done with the US, you've been very vocally critical of that yourself. How do you think you're going to get through to a trading partner so much bigger than us and make sure that a beef with with, with hormones don't enter our country? How does Labour do that? Well, I think think there are a number of, of different things that you look at in respect of this. Firstly, we have to remember that access to our market, one of the very biggest markets in the world, is is a great prize for other countries. Now, Mm. you can look at 
particular deals where tactics have gone wrong. Take the Liz Truss approach on the Australia deal, for example, where she set a deadline against herself. She literally set a deadline against herself. And so instead of holding out for the best deal, we had the situation where the government was trying to rush things over the line. There are other things you have to do as well, where you study and look at what's been achieved in other FTAs. And and just, just to pick up on CPTPP just for a moment. Now, take something like ISDS, which, you know, the Investor State Dispute Settlement Mechanism, about which a number of people have in recent years expressed concern because it gives investors from overseas the right to sue the government. That's essentially what it is about. And the concern around that has always been that the government regulates or seeks to regulate in a particular sector and opens it up to itself up to lawsuits. Now, when New Zealand, for example, acceded to the CPTPP, it put in place side letters with all the other countries to exclude its provisions. Now, that's something that's already been achieved. Now, I was looking at the notes for CPTPP, and we've not, by the way, had a statement of parliament yet. The government, shamefully, in my view, uh, slipped this out on the last day before Easter, so we didn't have a chance to immediately scrutinise. But one of the things I'll be pushing is it seems to be saying that the government maintains the right to regulate in the public interest, and they've excluded the ISDS provisions with Australia and New Zealand. But they don't appear to be saying very much about what they've done in respect of the other CPTPP members. So that's something, just going back to my point about the devil being in the detail, that we really do need to look at carefully next week. And it's interesting that you bring New Zealand up. From my understanding, New Zealand civil service had drastically underestimated the the benefits of this deal. Are you hopeful that with the 0.08% that our own civil servants have predicted in terms of the benefits of this trade deal over the next 15 years, are you hopeful that we might have underestimated it as well, that it might actually be slightly larger than that? The, the government's objective should be to absolutely make sure that that's an underestimate because we we can speak about these these various projections hmm. and of course you know I, I've spoken about the government overestimating benefits in certain areas hmm. we have to hold them to account on that however ultimately the extent to which new trading arrangements will benefit us depends upon what the government actually does and rather than this debate about what might or might not be the benefit in five or six years time get on with it and make sure that there is a benefit by backing our exporters to access those markets Just moving on slightly from the topic of CEPTPP, we've got the local elections coming up. That's in England, not in Wales, but but still the elections will be coming up and you will be involved in helping your colleagues, I imagine, in some way or another. I saw that you tweeted one of the attack posters that have caught some controversy. You're OK with these posters? You think that it's cutting through with your uh, with your voters? I make no apology at all for drawing attention, as those ads have done, mm. to the government's record on crime. You know, I I worked in the criminal justice system for a few years in my my early years as a barrister. I'm a constituency MP who sees the impact of crime on our communities. We've had this debate uh, around the ads, but a far bigger debate for me is not so much the content of the ads, it's the impact of the Conservatives' failure on our criminal justice system 
over the past 13 years and pointing out, as we have, on particular types of crime where people aren't ending up going to prison, people being convicted of these awful offences. I think that is perfectly legitimate thing to do and to hold the government to account. And by the way, we talk about holding the government to account. Rishi Sunak is the leader of the Conservative Party and the Prime Minister. He should be held to account for the government's appalling record. And... Just lastly, um, while I have you, uh, you mentioned that you're a barrister, but I know that you also write books in your spare time. And I know that two of your books have been on former Labour leaders. Who's the next book going to be on? Perhaps Tony Blair or maybe Jeremy Corbyn? (laughs) I've been asked this question. I've said a few times that I came with Harold Wilson up to a prime minister who left office in 1976. It's probably as a historian, the closest I'm going to get to the modern day. I've talked about going back to write about Labour's first Prime Minister, Ramsay MacDonald. I've also spoken about writing about Barbara Castle, but I have to say I am hoping over the next few years to be to be far too busy for a further book. <laughs> Fair enough. Well, good luck. And thank you so much for joining us, Nick. It was a pleasure talking to you and, and getting your views on the CPTPP and other things. Pleasure. And that was Nick Thomas-Simmons, MP. That's all from this week's Chopper's Politics listeners. Thank you to my guests today, Amanda Tickell, Liam Halligan, Philip Davies MP and Nick Thomas-Simmons MP. Thank you to my producers, Louisa Wells and Giles Gear, And most importantly of all, thank you to you for listening. If you enjoyed the episode today, why not leave us a rating and a review on Spotify or Apple Podcasts? It really helps other listeners find the show. And as always... Do buy a copy of The Telegraph if you can. And as Chris would say, cheerio!